Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. My guest today is Dr. Angela Puka, whose research focuses on magic, witchcraft, paganism, esotericism, shamanism, and related currents. Angela holds a bachelor's and a master's degree in philosophy and has lectured at Leeds Trinity University for several years. In 2021, the University of Leeds awarded her a PhD in Anthropology of Religion, which will be published in the upcoming year. Author of several peer-reviewed publications and co-editor of the forthcoming Pagan Religions in Five Minutes for Equinox, she hopes to bridge the gap between academia and the communities of magic practitioners by delivering related scholarly content on her YouTube channel and TikTok, Angela's Symposium. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Angela, and I hope you do as well. Okay. Hi, Angela. Hi, Josh. <laughs> How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for jumping on here with me. Thank you for inviting me over. Yeah, I came across your work through, first of all, I was just on social media and I came across your Twitter account and I saw that you were posting about a lot of things that I get interested in around, um, the way I think about it is like the like religious history and re our religious past and how the past and the future have merged together. But then you've taken, um, I mean, this is your career and, and you've... Uh, researched it and now you've um you've been putting together for years now this youtube channel and that's where i really you know started watching some of your videos and seeing some of the things that you were saying and i was thinking i just think to myself wow this is fascinating because the way that you come about the way that you present it is from such an academic perspective where you have historical context and you have the evolution of thought and you have the influence of different people so yeah, I came across you uh, that, through Twitter, through your YouTube channel, but um, I would love to just hear kind of your thoughts about it because uh, really what I want to ask you about is, um, is about those things that you're passionate about and then it's become your task to then share those things you're passionate about with the world. And so I'd just love to kind of hear your story. How did you get to this point where you had this information and that you're sharing it with the world? Well, I'm glad that you <laughs> found my work fascinating. So my journey starts, I guess, when even when I was a child, I've always been very fascinated with magic. I'd say that magic tends to be my primary interest. And then everything that surrounds magic and gravitates around it is also an interest of mine. But I'd say that I've always been fascinated with uh, magic practices, esoteric practices, the occult uh, growing up. And then at university, I uh, I did philosophy, uh, Eastern and Western philosophy at University of Naples in Italy. So if uh, that wasn't clear from my accent, I'm Italian. And so I did my undergrad in Eastern and Western philosophy, and I studied both types of philosophy. And it's interesting because uh, then I ended up also teaching Asian philosophies at university. Uh, but one of the things that I tell my students is that philosophy in the Western world tends to be more strictly theoretical and philosophical, whereas in Asia, for instance, or the so-called Eastern philosophy category, tends to also encompass religious elements. So even though my degree was in philosophy, there were many religious elements in my in my degree and uh, even exams on uh, history of religions and things of that sort and then during my master's 
in between my bachelor's and my master's, I started studying uh, Sanskrit and Tibetan because um, at first I wanted to become a Buddhist study scholar. Even in that case, my primary focus was magic. So obviously that's why Sanskrit and Tibetan <laughs> and not uh, another combination of languages because usually students would choose two languages depending on what your interest was. In my case, since it was mainly Tantric Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, and also Tantra and uh, yoga. These were all things that include some elements of magic. And so that's why I gravitated towards those. But then by the end of my master's, you know, I started to get more in touch with the academic world outside of Italy. In Italy, the study of aesthetic practices and magic in the contemporary world is especially at the time, was basically non-existent. It was already very rare for you to find people researching magic and, you know, magic-related or uh, magic-practicing religious traditions. But, you know, it was already rare in the history and in other countries, let alone in the contemporary world. And then I came across, thanks to YouTube, um, a, a PhD, there was a, an exposition of PhD research from uh, Dr. Jenny Butler. Uh, she is now a friend of mine, and uh, she was doing her PhD on contemporary witchcraft and paganism in Ireland. And that was a bit of a, an epiphany for me, because I had no idea that it was possible to study these things from an academic point of view at university for a PhD, it was just like, for me, it was like <laughs> an, an eureka moment, as uh, they would say in ancient Greek. So, and at that point, I just decided that I wanted to do a PhD on contemporary esoteric practices. And uh, so I went on and I applied for two PhD programs. I got into both and I decided to go at the University of Leeds because I also had a teaching position at Leeds Trinity University while I was doing my PhD. And so my PhD was on Italian shamanism and uh, also Italian folk magic. And now I'm working on turning it into a book. And then during the final year of my PhD, I decided that I wanted to start a YouTube channel. Well, actually, that was on my mind. That had been on my mind for quite some time. Uh, sometimes write a diary. I have, you know, my own journal. And I kept writing from the, I think, ever since the first year of my PhD, uh, that I wanted to uh, open a YouTube channel and start disseminating academic research on paganism, shamanism, you know, all things are called, but from an academic point of view. But then I honestly didn't have time because during the first year of my PhD, I had so much on my plate. I was doing a PGCHE as well, which is the postgraduate certificate in higher education. And it is something that you need in the UK to teach at the university level. And then I was doing my PhD and I was teaching at the university. Everything, you know, started <laughs> during my first year. So I was so busy that I couldn't possibly have the time. Then during the last year of my PhD, I asked for a sabbatical from teaching because uh, that way I could write up my thesis. And I had a lot of material that I had researched, but didn't end up in my PhD dissertation. So I thought these things are actually quite interesting. I think that people might be interested in knowing about this stuff. And so I decided, you know, you know what, I'm going to start a YouTube channel since this year I'm not going to teach. I will channel my, <laughs> my teaching needs into the YouTube channel. And so that's what I did. The final year of my PhD, I started the, the YouTube channel. And um, yeah, it was uh, August uh, 2019. So it was three years and half ago. And then, yeah, I'm still doing it. <laughs> and then I, I started also TikTok and Facebook and under the name Angela Symposium, because my idea was that I wanted to not be about me, but be about knowledge. And I had in my mind a Plato Symposium, you know, when you have all the intellectual oh. <laughs> gathering together and discussing things, because I thought I'm not here to just 
tell people my interpretation of text. I'm not just here to talk about my research. I'm here to talk about also other people's research. So it's a bit of a symposium in that sense. And that's why I went for that name. And I also interviewed scholars. Recently, I started interviewing practitioners as well. Uh, so my idea was to basically disseminate peer-reviewed and academic research on historicism, magic, paganism, shamanism, and you know occult topics, because I find that there is a lack of that. People don't really, you know, you find a lot of information on these things, but not from an academic point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that especially in my in my situation, you being uh, in Europe, you're where the West was started, where it was created in that, you know, that Mediterranean European area. For me, I'm way out West where everything that you're talking about as far as witchcraft, esoteric wisdom, uh, the occult, it's all been so Disneyfied that it's almost uh, a fairy tale, like way out west where I am. To me, it's kind of a shame because I think what you're doing is you're bringing to light that this is all historical. This is all tradition. This was something that that got humanity to where we are. And um, I'm just curious from your perspective, when you say things like magic, what does magic mean to you? Like, how do you define magic for yourself? Well, that's a good question. And uh, academics tend to have long and endless discussions about how to define terms, especially terms such as magic. And it is very difficult to define. I like how Ben Christian Otto, a scholar from Germany, defines magic as a floating signifier, something that has to do with learned magic, learned magical practices, uh, something that you learn so that you can achieve things that go beyond the mundane perception of human agency. But at the same time, it is a floating signifier because it changes depending on the person, it changes depending on the context, it changes depending on the tradition. For me, I guess when I talk about magic, I talk about ways whereby human beings go beyond the mundane perception of their agency, the mundane perception of the entities that you can interact with, the realms of reality that you can interact with, is a way of going beyond, I would say, is a tool to beyonding. I think that I heard. <laughs> a tool of beyonding. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, because you know that uh, scholars have these things that they like to make up new terms. And <laughs> I think that one term that uh, Graham Harvey, who's a professor uh, here in the UK, uses a lot is religioning. And he tends to use the a lot of, you know, uh, to sort of make into verbs terms that are <laughs> very fluid and flexible, yeah. like uh, religioning or othering. And so <laughs> for me, I guess that magic is a tool of, Beyonding. <laughs> Beyonding. If that makes any sense. It makes sense to me. It, make, it makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you this. From the perspective of somebody who studied this so much, for the people, our ancient ancestors, for the people that are in the past, our ancient past, and then for the people now who are trying to do this beyonding, what is it that they're trying to get beyond? What has got them in a place where they need to get beyond? And that's a good question. And obviously, I, I don't have a universal answer, but I have my own speculation on it. You just reminded me a little bit of Mircheliade and the idea of the sacred and the profane and uh, sort of this need to uh, reach out to the sacred, uh, to that dimension of the sacred. I think that that is an element of that beyonding. I think that human beings tend to search for meaning. We tend to often have the perception that what we have in front of our eyes and what our mundane experience is about, it cannot be just that. You know, you have that sense of there is something else, there is something more. And people tend to look for that something more and they find different answers. Some in the 
more in the Abrahamic religions and some other people in mysticism and in personal, in a more individually tailored spirituality. But I think that there is a perception that we want to find meaning and we want to reach beyond what is here and there in the mundane world. And also there is, I think, a sense of connection, you know, wanting to feel a sense of connection with what is beyond us. That is another element of that beyonding that I was talking about. And with aesthetic practices or with magic, you achieve that by entering deeply into the fabric of reality to somewhat manipulate it by also changing yourself. So it is a sense of connection that is established. It is also a sense of connection because there is that hermetic perception that uh, everything is connected by invisible ties and there are correspondences in the world between the microcosm that we are and the macrocosm that is the universe. So you enter also a sense of connection because by practicing magic or believing in magic, you also endorse and perceive that all things are interconnected. And so you fulfill that sense of connection. And there is also a fulfilling of that sense of connection when there is working with deities or spirits or entities, allied spirits, any kind of entity that a practitioner may be working with. So I think that magic and aesthetic practices tend to respond to a need for meaning, a need for connection, and a need for going beyond and exploring what are really the limitation of human agency, what makes us human. And I think it's interesting because it is an attempt to respond at an existential need that human beings have. These are things that I think about all the time. Uh, you bring up things like the sacred and the profane connection to the macrocosm and the microcosm. I think about these things all the time because it's interesting that in our modern world, we ended up with, you know, for example, in the Western world, we ended up with Christianity as kind of the de facto environment. And so everybody grew up in a world where spirituality and connection to the divine was very well defined for everybody, or it is. But in a weird way, it leaves you disconnected because for some reason, it's really hard to, I don't know, grasp that you have that connection through some, for some people, it works to go sit in a church and to pray and feel like God is listening to them. But for some people, the structure is too rigid and it actually separates them from that feeling of connection to something bigger. I'm, I'm actually curious about this in your, in your research or in your entire experience with this, when it comes to the occult, when it comes to shamanism, it seems as if there's far less structure. You might learn from a mentor or somebody who comes before you, but everybody in essence is figuring it out for themselves also. Whereas in a religion, everything is once again defined for you. And in that sense, it almost removes that connection from whatever you're trying to do because you're just repeating a process. I don't know, For I guess for humans, repeating a process can actually be very powerful, like a ritualized process. But I don't know, I, I'm just curious, how is it that through magic or the occult, how, how is it that people find meaning or how do, what is the actual process for breaking into the beyond and seeing something that gives them meaning or feeling something that gives them meaning? I think that depends a lot on the practitioner. Every person may go through a different process. Uh, mine is a massive generalization, probably. Uh, the idea is that as I am in a way anticipated before that when you practice magic, there are things that you are trying to do. For instance, you are trying to alter your reality. You're trying to heal somebody. You're trying to get in contact with spirits or deities. And all these things are things that in a way, not only challenge your mundane perception of yourself, but they also challenge 
your status as a separated human being? Because how is it possible that you, a separated entity in the world and in reality and from other human beings, how can you possibly alter somebody else's health, for instance, to restore their health if you are a separated thing from another human being? So that kind of challenges that very perception that we are separated entities, even though you know, I'm not saying that people that practice magic, they all have this kind of theory in their mind because I don't think that that is the case. But it could be the case, mine as a speculation, could be the case that even when you don't have that theoretical acknowledgement, by performing the act, you are still entering in that state of connection. So in that sense, it is a process of beyonding because you go beyond the limitations or beyond the perception of you as a separate single entity. And you enter in conversation with the universe in a way. I mean, you enter in the fabric of reality. You enter in connection with other elements of the world. So if you use gemstones and herbs and you have the belief that a specific gemstone is connected to health or a specific herb is connected to love you are in a way acknowledging and feeling that there is a sense of connection between things and correspondences between things where all things are somewhat connected by invisible ties. So by participating in this perception of reality, you are also participating in a perception of the world and in a worldview that allows you to feel the connection more than the separation. And that is a process of beyonding, I would argue. I think that's actually a really good explanation of it. And it does kind of go... Like you were saying, it takes you from being this thing that's separate to being connected to the whole. And in a way, the Western mythology is all about separating you from the whole. Then when you start looking at some of these occult practices or just these older systems, they're very much in line with what you see in the East with meditation and through Buddhism and the Hindu religions. And I'm curious if growing up, with your curiosity in the occult, but then not seeing a path into academics through it. Is that what took you initially to the East was kind of a similar sense of oneness? Yeah, first I, I think that you reminded me that I wanted to clarify that when you said that occult practices or magic practices or aesthetic practices are less structured compared to Abrahamic religions, that is not necessarily the case. There are some practices that are less structured, like shamanism, or I'd say many eclectic aesthetic practitioners have a very unstructured in, and individually tailored approach to their practice. But you also have very structured systems, very structured traditions, like in ceremonial magic, even in Indian traditions, like in Tantra and in yoga, you can have very, very structured traditions that, you know, have as their aim mysticism and even the practice of magic. So that is one thing that I wanted to clarify. And then why did I go to the East? I'd say that it was the only way whereby I could study academically something that was in line with my interests at the time because the study of eastern philosophy and maybe that is uh, unfortunately a problem that we have uh, still even though it is waning now but for a long time we have had the problem of exoticizing the east and exoticizing in this case. And so there is the perception that, uh, okay, we in the West are uh, secular and rational. And then if you want to understand something that goes beyond those confines, you have to look at the East. And this is a trend that you find also in the 19th century with theosophy and the Golden Dawn and the 20th century uh, esotericists. And I think that you have that you have that perception at least i had that perception years ago even in academia the the idea that 
you can study these things, even shamanism. I mean, you can study shamanism and the, these ecstatic forms of mysticism if you do it in Nepal or if you do it in South America, but not in Italy because Italy is Europe. So there's no shamanism in Europe. So, you know, you have to, and this is one of the, the argument that I put forward in my in my PhD research, the fact that we need to abandon exoticism and look at traditions and practices for what they are and not, you know, veil them with um, other types of biases, cultural biases. Right. So I think that that's the reason why I looked at the East. There were obviously things that really, really interested me and still interest me in uh, Buddhism, Tantra and yoga, for instance, and in Tibetan practices as well, even the Bern tradition, the shamanistic tradition. So there are things that really interest me. And at the time, it seemed like the only path to studying magic and aesthetic practices in, in the academic world. And then I realized that that was not really true because outside of Italy, things were different. And now things are different in Italy as well. Luckily, things are changing. Why do you think that is? What is causing things to change? Or why has this focus of research become more acceptable or more, more in line with uh, just mainstream curiosity? It's difficult to find one answer to that. The field of pagan studies and aestheticism is very young. Uh, it is only a few decades old. And the pioneers of this academic field are still alive and with us, except for one Antoine Favre, who passed away recently. Why? Why is this field of study so young? I think it is so young because... The esoteric practices have emerged massively in the 20th century and academia started to get an interest in that in the 80s and 90s. Also, thanks to the fact that uh, there has been a popularization of witchcraft and other esoteric practices, thanks to media. And I personally think that Wicca was extremely important in popularizing these practices and breaking the ice because in the past witchcraft was seen either as something totally malevolent or as something non-existent. So if you have a secular view, it doesn't exist. And if you have a Christian or Abrahamic view is something that is harmful. And Wicca challenges both statements because not only does it say that magic exists and witchcraft exists, but also that it is beneficial, that it helps people. And I think that the portrayal that Wicca gave of witchcraft as something that is religious, that is uh, nature-based, that it is positive and beneficial to human beings, really helped the community at large to be a bit more open to understanding what it is about. And then, you know, slowly this entered the, the cultural discourse. And then after some time now, I've, now you have practitioners openly discussing the left and, and path and challenging certain ethical views that you find in Wicca. But that initial phase in the, in the 70s and 80s and also the association that Wicca had with uh, gay and women's liberation movements in the US that really also uh, helped give a certain connotation to, to witchcraft and see witchcraft in a completely different light to the point where now we also have TV shows and social media portraying witchcraft in a more positive light. And having had that, really paved the way to a more open discussion in public discourse about witchcraft. So the more something gets talked about and practiced and the more data you have also for, for research and the more historical records you have. So I think that the reason why it is becoming more established as a field and you find more scholars in the field is because the practices themselves are more talked about, more practiced in the public. You know, people are more willing also to share. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm familiar with Wicca, but as an organization or as a group, I'm not familiar with its origins or how long it's been around. Are you familiar? 
yeah, I actually have a video on, that I posted recently on my YouTube channel, Angela Symposium. And in that video, I explored the claim of the founder of Wicca, Gerald Gardner, because he claimed that uh, Wicca was an ancient witch cult that, you know, dates back from before Christianity and that has been largely disproven by historians. So Wicca was born in the 1950s. It is tradition created by Gerald Gardner. And he also sourced from things from history, but from that to saying that it is a millennia old tradition, <laughs> you know, that's not that, yeah. that's not how historical claims work. You cannot just have a couple of things <laughs> thrown in there and say, oh, you know, this is as old as this one element that I have included. Right. Yeah. Um, so, no, Wicca as the religious tradition that we know today is was born in the 1950s came to the public in the 1950s some say that it was you know that Gardner had been working on that for one or two decades but it came to the surface in the 1950s and professor Ronald Hutton the historian from the University of Bristol he says that Wicca is the only religion that Britain gave to the world <laughs> which is interesting <laughs> probably true okay that might discount some of the other ancient belief systems, but with the efforts of the church to suppress whatever practices were taking place over the last, you know, 2000 years with the different purges and inquisitions and atrocities that went on just to make sure that a lot of this stuff didn't survive. What is the greatest source of surviving documentation or surviving information when you when you do your PhD, when you do research, where do people go today to find accurate information from the past that helps them understand these things? My research was anthropological and was on the contemporary world. But when uh, people want to research things from a historical point of view, academically speaking, so we are not talking about the practitioner that tries to figure out things for their practice, which is also fine, but... From an academic point of view, you don't look at centuries. You know, usually when an academic does research, there is a focus on a specific time frame. Right. And the reason is that it becomes more and more inaccurate. You know, the larger the time frame that you take into account, the less accurate you get in your research. Because, you know, for the very practical reason that even when you look at 50 years in history, you will find a lot of documentation. In some cases, it will contradict right. each other. And then you have to figure out what is reliable, what is not reliable, why one source is saying this and why the other source right. is saying you're gonna that. E you're going to end up with all sorts of contemporaries who are doing different things and competing with each other and even saying things about each other. Yeah. So that's why in academia at university, researchers focus on one area only. And then you collaborate with other scholars that work on different time periods. And then you put the data together and you get to a conclusion. But usually one scholar doesn't you know study 500 years or a sure. millennium a sure. millennium because that would be not an academic research it would be um you know a dilettante <laughs> sure i can understand that from the perspective of an individual but i guess my question is just given the efforts of the overarching authority the the roman catholic church and kind of the way that it went about making sure that this information didn't persist how has it persisted? How how are there still people who know the, or even you know if you if you are studying with um, modern with contemporary or like a uh, modern practitioners, are they part of a chain of practitioners that goes all the way back, or are these people who are picking it up along the way and kind of starting it anew? The short answer is that it's not an unchanging tradition from the beginning of times or from before Christianity. So the idea of a surviving tradition is not correct. It is something that practitioners like to believe, yeah. but it is not historically accurate. It sounds really, so what, really nice, right? Like it sounds... It's, yeah, it sounds very romantic. Very romantic, and yeah. <laughs> sounds awesome. Sounds very... <laughs> Sounds romantic. It sounds like, oh, we are part of this surviving thing that endured all the persecution. 
but uh, it is not historically accurate. So what you can say is that magic practices have always existed, you know, in all traditions, in all religions, all over the world, in different time periods, you always find some kind of magic practice. But from these two saying that it is an unchanging lineage that goes back from before Christianity that is historically incorrect. Uh, also, the type of witchcraft that you find persecuted in the Middle Ages is a very specific type of witchcraft, and it has no correlation with the contemporary witchcraft practices. So I would say that it is definitely the case that you find some type of witchcraft all over the world, across different religions and in different time periods. But the traditions and the types of witchcraft are very different from each other. And it is important to acknowledge differences because they allow you to better understand things. So I think that one problem that you find in early 20th century with certain scholars like Mircheliade or Joseph Campbell and others, you have the desire to endorse a perspective that is called perennialism. The idea that, you know, all religions, all spiritualities, they ultimately talk about the same thing. And that perspective is the perspective that makes you say, oh, Artemis is the same as this other deity who's the same as the other deities. So if you want to have an example of the wildest, most extreme form of perennialism, watch Zeitgeist. <laughs> you know, if you watch Zeitgeist, you will have the example of the wildest form of perennialism. Not all forms of perennialism are so irrational, <laughs> but you know, some also have a mystical and a religious purpose. But the point being that from an academic point of view, lumping together things that are different and flattening the complexity and the nuances and the diversities just to say that everything is one, you're losing knowledge. You are losing accurate knowledge. So this is not what academics do. Academics look for specific elements. They look for contextual elements. They look for cultural elements. So if two deities have some characteristics in common, but they are dressed differently, they are worshipped differently, and they come from different places and different times. They are different. So then from a religious and spiritual point of view, the practitioner can perceive as though they are the same, and that is a legitimate religious belief, but it is a religious belief. It is not what academics do. So that's also another difference between how academics approach uh, these types of things and how practitioners do so. Uh, because practitioners have as their main focus to improve their spiritual journey, to move uh, further in their spiritual and religious journey, whereas academics have as their primary focus getting accurate knowledge. So it's different. Are you able to speak to the differences between kind of the occult practices you were talking about in the past that were persecuted in the Middle Ages, those practices versus what you see today? Are you able to speak to kind of the specific differences? There are innumerable <laughs> uh, differences. I'd say that one element that you find, for instance, is that in contemporary, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to generalize. But let's give as an example, one example from, you know, the, the Middle Ages and the uh, what we see from the reports of the persecutions and one example from the contemporary world, because as I said, this would be too generic and <laughs> you have to narrow it down to... Yeah, it's like comparing two religions or something. It's like, no, it's like comparing a million of religions. <laughs> so it's, yeah. you have to narrow it down to at least a couple of examples so that the comparison is is possible. So if you see, for, for instance, I'm thinking about the Italian case and the idea of the ointment. In uh, there is a, an area in the Campania region that is famous. It's called Benevento. It's a city that even now it's a bit like the Italian Salem because everything is witch themed. And that is because uh, there is this myth, this legend that there was a walnut where the witches would uh, fly to the Sabbath and encounter the, the devil. 
Now you have tales of that from the persecution times, the idea of flying to the Sabbath, the idea of encountering the devil. Some have speculated the, that this ointment is something that would be put on, the, on a broomstick and be absorbed by the intimate parts of the witches, and that would contain psychotropic uh, drugs that would be um, you know, absorbed by the body, and they would have the perception of uh, what we would now call astral traveling, even though the idea of astral traveling is is a recent concept, you know, the out-of-body experience, the out-of-body experience of flying to the Sabbath. So you have this idea of the Sabbath as this encounter of witches with the devil, and it's not something that you find in the contemporary world. You don't have the idea of, you have um, a re-elaboration of that idea in Wicca, of the idea of the Sabbath, but in a completely different way. You have a reinterpretation of the devil as the horn god, and a reinterpretation of the Sabbath as one of the eight solar celebrations of the year. And also you have in the Middle Ages a lot of talk about witches performing uh, harmful magic, maleficia, the harmful magic. Whereas in the contemporary world, witchcraft, especially the Wiccan type or Wiccan inspired forms of witchcraft tend to be nature worshipping, nature based, and tends to have a more benevolent ethical approach to the practice. So honestly, I would say that everything is different from beginning to end. <laughs> so you can find some similarities like the, the use of herbs, the use of psychotropic drugs that you find in certain traditions, not in all traditions, but these are sparse elements. And in terms of the, in a more systematic sense, you don't find a systematic practice that is the same from the past to the present. Uh, you could say that folk magic, folk magic is something that survives through the ages, but even in that case, it changes so much from one century to another. I just think that it might be better to acknowledge all the differences and the nuances and how things massively change over time and are affected by the, the changes in society rather than... I think that the risk of seeing only the similarities and excluding completely the differences is that for once you are losing knowledge, you are losing an accurate understanding of the phenomenon. And also you are you're not really understanding what you are doing now, the practice that you're doing now, because you are romantically and creatively associating it with something in the past that was in reality, very, very different. Yeah. And so you're almost just projecting like a, a desired view of what, what may have once possibly existed. <laughs> yeah. In a way, I'm sorry that people see this as a, as a buzz killer, you know, when you say these kind of things. But I don't think that it is something that undermines the importance of contemporary witchcraft and contemporary magic practices. I think that a higher awareness of what the contemporary practices actually are instead of romanticizing them and instead of lumping together things that are different from each other allows people to have a higher awareness of their practices, a better understanding of their practices. And also, I think that it fosters critical analysis and critical thinking, which is something that is sorely needed in our contemporary society uh, because when you just lump together lots of stuff you are flattening the discourse and we need complexity we need critical thinking we need nuance and we need to struggle to understand things but strive to achieve that knowledge as opposed to just yeah everything is one you know jesus is the same as krishna is the same <laughs> as Mitra, everything is the same thing. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> if everything is the same thing, it, it is nothing. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> so if I was to uh, state back, just, just to make sure that I understand what you're saying. One thing that people like to do is take, you can almost see it like the evolution of civilizations and their gods. So you have Marduk and then you have Osiris and then you have, you know, Zeus and Saturn and, and Odin. 
And what you're saying is that people, they look at all these different characters and they, they see the similarities and then they say, oh, these people are the same because their gods are the same. But what you're saying is that all of these gods have different differences in addition to their similarities. And these additions spring from the unique environment of those people, their, their place, their time, their mode of living, their mode of interacting with each other and with the world. And because of that, you take all of these unique experiences that have individual wisdom and you lump them up into these categories and you say, now we understand the history of everything. And you're just saying that you miss a lot when you try to say that these people here were doing the same thing as these people here simply because they had a similar archetype manifest as their chief god. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like saying you have two arms. I have two arms. Uh, we both have a head and we are both speaking in English. So we are basically the same thing. You can say that from a mystical religious point of view, but not from a historical academic point of view. So what I'm trying to say, and it's also important to make this difference, is that I'm not trying to suggest that people that have a spiritual experience of an archetype that manifests through different deities and through different cultural elements, I'm not trying to say that that mystical experience is not valid, but it is a religious experience. And what I'm trying to say is that I would not recommend confusing your mystical religious experience with the history of religion. So that's the only thing that I'm trying to say. So, for instance, when you talk about archetypes, you can say, you know, Eros and other deities from all over the world who are associated to love and passionate love, they all represent the archetype of Eros, right? In this way, we are kind of using a Jungian type of perspective and also a perennialist perspective. If you feel that doing that association and working on that association through meditation in your religious and spiritual practice helps your practice, that is brilliant. The problem, I think, starts when people have their own spiritual and mystical and religious experience and they want to affirm and claim that that is historically true. That's the problem. So the problem is not having, even in Wicca, in Wicca you have that they say, all goddesses are one goddess and all gods are one god. And they espouse this idea of a duodeistic approach where you have the feminine principle and the male principle. And they work on that, um, on those polarities that are present in nature and how they articulate in nature. And that's brilliant and that's absolutely fine. So as a scholar, I see the problem where the religious, spiritual, mystical experience translates into historical claims and factual claims. And that is a problem because in that case, the practitioner is not acknowledging that there is a difference, a due difference between a belief system, a worldview, your religious experience and the historical facts that happen in the world. And the two can be different, you know, and, you know, can can be parallel and different and uh, one doesn't undermine the other. So I wouldn't say that the experience of the practitioner that perceives two different deities as one in his or her or their practice is invalid because of that. I would just encourage people to not confuse what is your absolutely valid religious experience with historical facts and the historical documents and accuracy of what those gods were about because even when you when you analyze historically one goddess i don't know for instance hecate hecate is a completely different goddess depending on a specific time and a specific place so how can you lump together two different goddesses when even one goddess, if you look at the history and if you look at the different geographical places she had been worshipped, is completely different? In some cases, it's seen as uh, a mother type goddess. In other cases, it's seen as the cosmic principle. In other cases, so if even one goddess has so many different facets in history, how can you lump together even two, you know, let alone yeah. a variety of goddesses. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but 
it's a very human thing to want to control the gods, to want to put the gods into buckets and and categorize yes. them so that we can <laughs> talk about them. <laughs> yeah, but as as I said, it's I I really want to stress the point that I'm not against practitioners that do yeah. that in their practice because you know in your personal spiritual practice whatever helps you achieve your goal of meaning making and perceiving connection or whatever it is the goal of your spiritual religious practice that is absolutely fine i just question and this is something that i also find in abrahamic religions especially i've seen that in christianity you know trying to have historical claims based on religious beliefs and yeah. religious experiences and i think that in that case you run into a problem yeah. you run into a problem even with, with other people around you with your community you know it enters some dangerous territory i think when you confuse the two the, these two things yeah but in a way what you're talking about i think is actually built into the christian system to have an experience and then have the church tell you what that experience is so that you now know what everybody's experience is for all of history. I mean, in a way, I grew up in a religion, the church that I was raised in is the LDS church or Mormon church. And a big part of their religion is to say, if you pray about this church and you feel good, then you'll know that this church is true. And it sounds really nice from a spiritual or like a religious person's perspective to have a, conf a spiritual or they call it spiritual, but really what I would call it is an emotional confirmation that what they want to believe is true is true. And that type of process, I think, is like inherent to the Christian mindset where you are looking to have a similar experience to, say, Paul on the road to Damascus, where all at once your entire spiritual world changes because now you you've had this experience that's in line with all these other people's experiences. And one of the challenges that I had growing up was that a lot of the times what, especially in a formal religion, a lot of the times what these experiences are is experiencing emotions that you're unfamiliar with because you're in an emotionally unintelligent environment. And so you don't get a lot of emotional feedback until you're in a group talking about these shared beliefs. And then you get this emotional sensation, which is really just a social cohesion that you're feeling like a social connection because you're saying the same thing and you're all agreeing you're believing the same thing and so then that emotion gets hijacked and then it comes with a story that tells you if you feel this emotion what that emotion means is that this god is true and his son is true and this is true and so in a way i'm not trying to uh say that your complaint's not valid because i actually really agree with what you're saying I guess I'm just trying to say that it's almost as if the whole Western world is designed to do exactly what you're saying shouldn't be done, which is to assign your own personal experience to the experience of others. Mm. I think that that's a monotheistic problem. Yeah. Reminds me of an anthropologist called Marc Auger, and in a book that unfortunately is not translated in English, and it's called uh, Genie du Paganisme in uh, French. Uh, he talks about how the idea of one God is associated to one religion and one truth, meaning the other ones are incorrect. And he explains that uh, the paganism, polytheistic religions are inclusivist, whereas monotheistic religions are exclusivist. So there is one God, one religion, one truth. I have the truth. If you don't agree with me, you are in the wrong. Whereas with polytheistic religions, if you find another god, another goddess, it's like, oh, okay, we can include it in the pantheon, like the Romans did when they went to Egypt and encountered Isis. So they didn't say, oh, that's a false goddess. It doesn't exist. Or it's a demon. <laughs> they just said, oh, you worship Isis. Okay. And then they brought her to Rome. <laughs> so it, it is more of an inclusivist type of approach. Of course, there are exceptions to that as well for history, but that is generally what Marco Jay, the anthropologist, noted. And I think it's pretty accurate in terms of the exclusivist versus inclusivist approach. And I think in this sense, contemporary esoteric practitioners are also inclusivists because most practitioners don't have the idea that there is one truth. There are some that want to find the truth and you know, that's 
a sort of a metaphysical religious endeavor that not every practitioner thinks exists. You know, the, the idea of one truth. You can find perhaps your truth at a given time, and then it could be another truth at another given time, or it could be different from another people, from another person. So I would say that the idea of one truth tends to be particularly monotheistic. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, it's particularly ensnaring. It's like a trap for your cognitive development. Because once you get locked into just believing that there is one truth, as soon as you feel like you have that truth, you close yourself off to everything else. Yeah, and I was about to say that I personally respect all religions, so I don't mean to criticize monotheistic religions, but it is definitely not what the focus of my interest and my research is. Yeah, so you have obviously the interest in the occult and the esoteric, but you also have this background studying the East versus the West, which I think is really interesting because really quickly, if you just broke down the two, it's almost as if the East decided, they recognized that all these gods were voices in their heads and they said, okay, we'll, we'll set them aside and we'll just say the gods are good, but we don't have to listen to them. And then in the West, they went the complete opposite direction where they said, we can't deal with all of these voices. We need one authoritarian voice. And so they took all the voices in their head and they said, okay, there's just one God and that's going to be, you know, whether it's uh, the Zoroastrians or the Jews or the Christians or the Muslims, like we have this one God. And so in the West, you get this very strict mindset that you must have a truth. You must have this one truth. And so earlier you were even saying that a lot of people romanticize the East because once that one truth fails in their mind and they need something else, the East offers this idea of the complete opposite where you can get away from that one truth doctrine that hurt for so long. What I find really interesting is that there is this pull. People want either the Eastern religions to be true or the Western religion to be true. They want a truth either way. But in both cases, some of the wisest people on both sides came up with a different answer. For example, Buddha himself said that you should take the middle path, go down the middle. And then if you look in the, in the West, Aristotle, when he defined virtues, he said, you know, a virtue is neither to be extremely angry nor extremely passive, but to be in the middle and be temperate. And so again, the, some of the wisest people in the West came up with the same solution, which was, you know, go down that middle path, find the middle ground. I'm curious for you, how have you in your life, I know life is always a journey, but for you, how have you found uh, a place of, I don't know, peace or comfort? What What's worked for you? Um, personally speaking, I am a bit of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all are. Don't worry I, about that. <laughs> one thing that you find in religions is that um, you have the ascetic path or the tantric path, and then you have the um, middle path that you were describing that Buddha talked about between eternalism and hedonism. Which is the difference between wanting it all or just giving it all up right? Which is buying completely in or just letting go of it all. Yes. And then you have the tantric path, which is, it is a bit of a generalization because of course you have many, many different tantric traditions, but uh, it's more like getting so immersed into your feelings that at one point they dissipate. So for instance, if you are angry or, you know, there is some kind of passion that you are trapped in, you can disentangle yourself from that passion in an ascetic way or in a more tantric way. You get so immersed into that feeling and into that passion that you just allow it to run its course and go to the end of it. And that's a little bit what I usually do. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that I, I also, I, I would like to be more towards the middle path but I tend to be as a person more towards that tantric approach where I you, I go all out all in <laughs> you've got to process it you just process like let it happen yeah because personally I like experiences I like to feel uh in a deepest way possible so even when it can be a bit <laughs> you know <laughs> not ideal but yeah. I just I just like to to have that experience and then have it run its course and then I kind of dissipate because 
naturally everything has a beginning and an end. Yeah, that's that's well spoken. Who are your inspirations? Where do you turn to? Who do you read? Who do you listen to? Where do you turn to for new information? Mm, so um, difficult question because responding as an academic, I tend to look at the new research that is out there uh, in a field. In terms of people that have inspired me, I think Ronald Hutton has been a big inspiration along with uh, Jenny Butler, who is now a friend of mine. And there are many scholars in pagan studies and aestheticism that I find very inspirational because this is still a young field in academia and it's very difficult to make your way through it. When I need to find new information, it depends. If it is for my research or my YouTube channel or my Angela Symposium, I tend to look at peer-reviewed scholarship because that is the reliable, accurate information that is academic and scientifically produced. Personally, when it's not about my research, when it's not about my work on Angela Symposium, I also like to read books written by practitioners and participate in discussions. As part of my research, I've, al I've also done field work, which means participating in rituals, being initiated. And that is also something that I really like to do. I think that I like to participate and I like to experience things uh, so that you can also get a taste of things from a practitioner's perspective along, you know, along with the academic perspective. I think that I'm very passionate about bridging a gap between the two, between academia and the community of practitioners. How does somebody go about finding a trustworthy, useful practitioner? Somebody that is going to, I don't know, help them along with their psychological or emotional or spiritual journey? I'm not sure I'm the most qualified person to give advice on this because I'm an academic rather than a spiritual teacher. Sure. But I guess that the only thing that I would say is that I personally wouldn't trust somebody that portrays themselves as a, as a guru, as knowing things better than you. If there are some red flags about manipulation of any sort, I would run away very fast. And, you know, to keep an open mind, I'd say that any practitioner that tries to convince you that their way is the only way, for me, personally, that is something that I would not recommend. But obviously, it depends on your religious view. If you endorse a, a belief system where there is one truth, maybe for you, that could be actually helpful. Uh, so that's why I said I don't think I'm the best qualified person to to give advice on that because it's very personal and it really depends on what your worldview, your perception of the world, your perception of religion, your perception of spirituality is. I personally don't endorse the idea of one truth. So I, I wouldn't want a teacher or a practitioner that I wouldn't feel uh, that I could resonate with that type of of teaching. Uh, but I think it, it really depends on the person. So I'd say find what resonates with you, uh, but avoid any type of manipulation or things that might isolate you from people that you love and sever the connections that you have and that are meaningful to you. Yeah, I, I appreciate your um, your position because of your, your academic situation or, or your situation in academia. But I think the answer you gave is great because there are plenty of stories, like horror stories, of people being manipulated. And and so, yeah, uh, that message is of just people who aren't putting themselves out there as the only answer or people who aren't ascribing to a single truth and who who seem to have your best interest in mind. Manipulation can come in a lot of different forms, so you have to really keep an eye out for it. We have gone uh, just over an hour at an hour and 10 minutes, so I think... It's been a great conversation and, and we've got a lot of good content here. So I've had a good time. I hope you've had a good time. Just so that we have it here recorded, can you share really quickly where people can find you online, social media, your YouTube channel, website, anything like that? Uh, yes, people can find me on uh, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other platforms as uh, either Dr. Angela Pulka or Angela Symposium. 
and I will give you the, the link so that you can put them in the show notes and info box. Okay, sounds great. All right, well, thank you, Angela. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Josh, for inviting me over. Okay, goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast. I hope you find this and every other episode both interesting and engaging. I know I enjoy making them. My goal is to record high-quality conversations, both in terms of content and production value. But there's still a lot I need to learn. So if you have comments or suggestions about the audio recordings or the conversations themselves, please let me know. You can contact me via email at explorerpoet at gmail.com. For more about the Explorer Poet podcast, please visit explorerpoet.com or follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really want to be supportive, please share it with a friend. Thanks. Thanks.